Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. The digital revolution's in full swing today. And part of the di digital revolution is the uh, sort of the new wave, the new incoming cohort here of digital teenagers, digital 20-somethings, and so on like that. And the impact that they're having on the world is going to be quite profound, which we will hear all about today from one of our very favorite monthly guests, Christopher Lockhead who uh, is a world-class author, podcaster, uh, CMO, and just all around great guy in his own right. Chris, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. It's great to have you. It's great to be had, Bob. Love seeing you, love being here, love you. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of love, Chris. I, I will try to echo a lot of that back to you. And uh, Chris, you've always got some interesting takes on the world and you, you tend to see things a little before some others do and then uh, put these developments in perspectives that are pretty cool. And I think you are on to something rather special today. So I want to hand it over to you, let her rip, and uh, love to hear what you've got lined up. And then as the um, native digital say, we can conversate. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> very good. I'll, I'll be as conversatable as I can be. Uh, you normally are. So, so here's the thing that I find very interesting. Often there are um, massive transformations that happen in plain sight that most people pay no attention to. And I think that's what we've got going on here. And so, and I know we've talked a little bit about it in the past, um, but I wanna bring it to uh, an implication for our economy. So uh, me and my partners at Category Pirates, we really believe that um, the folks that are under 35, that are essentially the combination of uh, millennials and Gen Z or Gen Zoom, um, that uh, when you combine those two groups together, um, what we have here is the first of a new category of human being. And that the generational differences between these folks and the baby boomers and their children, um, Gen X, uh, are not just the normal generational stuff. Oh, their music sucks. Their culture sucks. Their clothes suck. You know, okay, boomer, all that stuff. Millennials are lazy. You know, that's sort of, to me, very typical, uh, the older generation poo-pooing the younger one and vice versa. So, of course, we have that going on. There's some fun to that and all that. But that's not the, the mega shift. The mega shift is this. If you're 35 or under, you are a native digital. You're the first human beings that have grown up integrated to the machines. And as we've talked about before, um, here's the big aha. If you're native digital, the digital experience of life is the primary experience of life and your analog experience of life is an adjunct is a sidecar is an add-on to it um and all you have to do is have dinner with a group of native analogs and native digitals native analogs being people over the age of 35 uh gen xers and boomers and above all you have to do is have dinner family dinner thanksgiving and just watch what people are doing and of course, the native digitals are all on their phones or devices, and the native analogs, for the most part, are talking to each other. And that's because 
there's a 180 degree difference of the experience of life between these two mega categories of human being, which is if you're native analog, like you and I are, our primary experience of life is a, is a in-person, is a physical experience, is a, what we would call a real world experience. Well, their real world is digital, digital first. And sort of there's some interesting ahas about this. Um, the first one is, I think, regardless of what you're, whether you're native digital or native analog, we have to understand that we are dealing with people who are 180 degree different than us. So if you're a native digital, you have to understand that your parents and your grandparents are 180 degree different people than you are. Their wiring is different um, and vice versa. And this has profound effects for our economy. And it, frankly, it has profound effects for the way we live, work, and play. So here are some interesting numbers. Um, uh, right now, let's see, there are 140.1 Americans who are millennials and Gen Zs, so native digitals. And the native analogs are uh, just a hair under that. They're like a hundred, uh, one point, or uh, excuse me, 138 million, I think is the number. So at a high level in the United States of America, we have uh, equal sizes of these mega generations when you compare them. However, um, the native digitals are nothing like the native analogs. And it's having a profound effect. And, and let me share with you a couple of things. And I think we touched on this a little bit in the past, but I think it's important to underscore here. Yeah. Um, recently, oh, so if we look at uh, uh, some of the biggest digital companies, Google, Apple, and Netflix. Interestingly enough, each of these companies is run by a native analog. So uh, Sundar Pichai is 49, CEO of Google. Uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook is 60, and Netflix CEO Reed Hastings is uh, 60. In the Wall Street Journal, Hastings called remote work, quote, a pure negative. All three company CEOs mandated that after employees are vaccinated, they have to come back to work. All three CEOs publicly have said things that, uh, that are in the domain of um, Hey, to do really cool, innovative work like we do here at Apple, Google, Netflix, you got to be in person. So they mandate that their people come back. Well, as we've talked about, what happened? The people revolted. So what's going on here? When you're native analog, your primary reality is a physical or analog reality. Therefore, of course, the only way to do creative, innovative work is in person. Because if your primary experience is an analog one, then working in the analog way is the way to get work done. However, these companies have huge percentages of native digitals. And if you're native digital, going to work is insane. You don't have to physically be somewhere to do work. Being physically somewhere to work is insane to you. And so what happened? In all three cases, the employees revolted. And in all three cases, the native analog CEOs had to renege. So what is this telling us? I think 
if three of the CEOs of the greatest digital companies in history don't understand what a native digital is, that's very sobering for all of us. And it's very easy to look at this and go, oh, well, you know, this is just a bunch of millennials whining about things they like and avocado toast and shit like that. Um, or, or this is just, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, the pandemic has ushered in a new way of work and so forth and so on. Okay, no. The reason the definition of work is changing, the reason we have a new category of knowledge work is because we have a new category of person. And shockingly, these three CEOs who are native analog don't understand that. And if they don't get it, um, what does that mean about the rest of us native analogs and whether or not we get it? So I think the cold shower here, Bob, is that the uh, native digitals are so radically different that even the most in tune with the digital world of native analogs uh, can miss what's really going on here. Well, Chris, you know, I remember um, about a year and a half ago, you were describing a visit of some friends from England and, uh, you know, there's going to a dinner at sunset and uh, you know, the, the children of your friends, you know, like sunset, you know, okay, big deal. It happens about once a day. Um, you know, I have more interesting things going on in my device here. And uh, that was, you know, one of the first sort of jarring things. I mean, we all sense it in some way, but the way you pushed that at the time or, you know, surfaced this idea was one that it wasn't that the uh, the adults were right and the kids were wrong. They're just being dumb teenagers who have to be sort of not taught some manners, but it was for them, it wasn't, uh, they weren't, it wasn't a social revolution or they weren't trying to be disrespectful they were being real they were being their real which was this is how i engage with the world so i remember that made my head spin some at the time not that i disagreed with what was happening but i just thought okay this is another manifestation of teenage rebellion but it's something that you know with the right sort of persuasion and argument we can overcome that but it's Clearly it's not. And over the past 15, 16 months, all the things that have gone on have only intensified it. But I think, as you said, that's not a temporary blip. This is just something that has sort of made us all, I think, a lot more aware of this. Uh, and very good point there too, Chris, about these, you know, the, uh, the heads of Google and uh, Netflix and Apple, uh, who you think might be a little more in tune and they completely whiffed on it. It's fascinating. And here's how profound the change is. So uh, an outfit called Flex Jobs did a survey and they found that 58% of workers said they would absolutely work for a new job if they could not continue in remote work. And Bloomberg reports that um, uh, most white collar knowledge workers would rather quit their jobs than go back to the office. Uh, and if you look in your own life, you probably see this in my case, um, uh, one of my nieces is, is in her mid thirties and, um, her employer was mandating that she come back. She works in accounting and she said, I, I don't want to come back. So she quit. And two or three weeks later, she got a new job and she went to go work for a startup and a, she got a big bump in pay 
because as you know, regardless of what the employment numbers say, we're at zero unemployment in this country because anybody who wants a job can get one, best I can tell. Um, and we could talk about, you know, Uncle Biden paying people to stay home if you want, but it's <laughs> probably a different conversation. Um, but regardless, my niece, uh, Melissa, got a job, big bump in pay at a startup. And guess what? That startup has no office. It has no headquarters. And that's a big part of why she took the job. And, and yet dumb ass native uh, analogs, because their experience of life is a physical analog experience, of course, when you're going to work, you need to work in person. Well, it turns out that that's as stupid as thinking that you should buy physical art. Because if you're a native digital, buying a Picasso is the dumbest thing you could do. But spending several million dollars on an NFT from Banksy makes all the sense in the world because the physical is what's real. Uh, excuse me, the digital is what's real and the physical is the adjunct to it. And um, this, this change is very, very profound. It's going to impact the way we hire, retain, the way we can innovate, the way we can uh, build new technology and grow. Um, and we're now at a point where we're just on the cusp of native digitals being the, the majority at work. And get this, Bob, today you have a 62% chance of having a millennial boss. So um, this has profound implications for the way we work, but it's a lot more than just that. So here's the big, big, big impact that most people can't see beyond what we just talked about. Uh, let's talk about one of the biggest categories of uh, GDP uh, in the United States and frankly in the world, what you might call the stuff business, hard goods and consumable goods, stuff in the analog world, analog stuff. Um, so um, this mega category is roughly 30% of the US GDP is durable and non-durable goods. Well, guess what? 140 million native digital Americans don't want stuff. They grew up in an era where they watched their parents accumulate a shit ton of stuff, increase the size of their houses, buy new cars, jewelry, what, what are the fuck people bought in an effort to uh, improve their lives. They also saw their parents work their hoo-hoos off. So they ha had an environment where they saw their parents working very, very hard, many uh, two income families and to buy stuff. And that stuff didn't seem to change their parents' uh, experience or quality of life. So that is a sort of uh, an aha. If you ask a 16 year old about this, you will get a stunning answer about what their priorities are in terms of work and life. And this idea that we all got sold, which is, hey, man, you go to work, you work real hard, 40, 60, 80 hours a week. You work your hoo-hoo off until you get to 65, and then you retire, and then you can enjoy life. As we talked about when we talked about this idea of the YOLO economy, um, it, you, you now have 140 million Americans saying, I don't fucking think so. And so they saw there was really very little correlation between stuff and enjoyment of life or happiness of life. Some, 
you know, it's cool to have a great car if you want that, or it's nice to have a nice TV. But they saw they saw their parents chasing stuff, and it didn't really uh, amount to stuff uh, amount to a change in their lives. There's another thing going on right now that really underscores the problem people in the stuff business have. Um, uh, not to bring up things that aren't fun, but you've had the experience of losing parents. Yes. And when we lose parents, if we're native analogs, um, the parents leave behind a whole bunch of stuff. Antique lamps and grandma had that, you know, uh, that that uh, 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 silver plate or silverware that she loved so much and uh, all, all this stuff, sometimes cars, sometimes I, I have a friend right now, his father's got cars and boats and all this stuff. Well, guess what? When you go to give native digitals, grandma and grandpa's stuff, their favorite ring, their watches, their whatever's, um, the kids don't want it. It's junk. And so in a generation, we've literally had the pursuit of stuff go from being one of the most valuable or, or valued things in our world to 140 million young Americans um, view it mostly as junk. 74% of Americans now say they value experiences more than physical products. And the vast majority of people who say that are millennials. Today, um, Gucci is selling virtual bags for more than they're selling digital or physical Gucci bags. R wrap your brain around that for a second. Uh, as I mentioned, NFTs are showing, you know, it was hysterical to watch the native uh, analogs shit all over these NFT sales. Well, I don't know about NFTs in specific, but what I do know is if you, if your primary experience of life is digital, then you're going to spend time, money, and energy improving and enhancing your digital life, not your physical life. Uh, cryptocurrencies, what people don't understand about crypto is it is now becoming the primary quote unquote way we store value in the digital world. And just as a side note, the recent spike in inflation is gonna increase um, the value and the focus on crypto. And if you're a native digital, just like the idea of a physical painting is stupid, just like the idea of going to a physical job is stupid, physical art is really stupid. What if somebody steals it? What if somebody pierces a, uh, this is a side note, but. I knew this entrepreneur in the dot-com era, complete piece of shit. And he made a, a whole bunch of money, like a, a giant amount of money. And he went to Europe on a buying spree and he bought all this antique stuff. And I mean, he, he, he bought a you know $500,000 watch and just, and he, and he went with his wife who had the IQ of a houseplant. His IQ was pretty much there as well, but the two of them together were quite the pair. Anyways, um, he bought a very, very small Monet for some giant amount of money. This is back in the late 90s. And his dumbass wife fired a Nerf gun at it. And the Nerf bullet wrecked the fucking painting. Anyway, physical products can be destroyed. Yeah. 
Chris, fascinating point. And uh, let me just take a second here. I want to uh, offer up a word from BMC, our sponsor. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A game. Um, uh, the other one, uh, recently we had, uh, Marty Cooper on Follow Your Different. And of course, uh, most people don't know who Marty Cooper is. Marty Cooper is the creator and inventor of the cell phone. He led the team at Motorola that did that. And, uh, one of the things he said to me is, uh, and he's in his nineties now and he's unbelievable. And I find it shocking and terrible that we all know who, Steve Jobs is, and we all know who Bill Gates is, and we all know who a lot of the great innovators of the modern era are. And um, I would assert, this is a side note, I would assert that no innovation has been more impactful in modern times to humanity than the mobile phone, and yet nobody knows who Marty is. He's got a great new book out called um, uh, Cutting the Cord. Anyway, one of the things Marty told me, he said, there are more cell phones in the world than there are toothbrushes. So um, that's sort of where we are with this technology and stuff. And here's the other one. 70% of millennials are not in a financial position to buy a house. So even if they wanted to buy stuff, they've got nowhere to put stuff. Additionally, what they value is not what we valued. Um, Native digitals are not getting their driver's licenses. Native digitals would rather travel and have autonomy over their schedule than land a high paying job. Meet my niece, Melissa, as an example. So because we are having the first generation of a new category of human, we're also having the biggest shift in perceived value in a hundred years. The stuff that your parents and my parents and your grandparents and my grandparents valued the most is now considered junk by their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And they don't want it. And, and even if they did, they got nowhere to put it. So what does that mean? Well, it means that 30% of the U.S. GDP is going to change. And what it means specifically is if you're in the stuff business, you work for a company that makes physical stuff, you're in trouble if you don't wake up. So Harvey, Harley Davidson's sales are, are dying. Why? Native digitals aren't buying motorcycles. They're not even getting driver's licenses. Canon finished because they're just a camera company. And even look at companies that are doing very well. If Nike doesn't lead in the digital sports category, if within a few years, they're not getting a disproportionate amount of revenue from, uh, I don't know, NFT shoes, maybe, um, they're in a lot of trouble. Uh, if Costco doesn't figure out the digital consumer and, and the, the blurring of what's digital and what's physical, um, they're in a lot of trouble because the more the more your life is digital, the more time, money, and energy you're going to spend on enhancing your digital life, and specifically, 
What native digitals want are experiences. And what our friend Joe Pine, who wrote one of the most important business books the last 25 years, The Experience Economy, calls transformations. He says an experience, a transformation is one level after an experience. So you, you, you do something that's an experience and it somehow enhances or changes your life in some way. And there, therefore it is a transforming experience. I'm synthesizing what Joe says. And so the native analogs, that's what they value. They value experiences and they value experiences that are transformational in some way. Um, and so what do we think is going on here? Well, first of all, the World Bank says that global GDP has shifted from 54% services in 96 to 65% services in 2018. And what have we seen in the tech industry? This podcast is called Cloud Wars. Well, every cloud technology company is a services business. And many of them, of course, who were leaders in prior eras, as you write about all the time, have had to, quote, transform, right? So Microsoft, by way of example, you write about this all the time, used to sell physical stuff. <clears throat> and then they'd sell maintenance with it. Well, today, we subscribe to Microsoft Office. And so the shift to digital is, is a, is a, the corollary with it, the, the thing that is connected to it is the shift to services. And we see that in what the World Bank tells us. And so if you're in the physical stuff business, you have to make two changes. You have to create digital um, capabilities around your physical stuff, and you are going to probably sell them as services. So by way of example, what are we going to see in cars? Well, we're going to subscribe to all the shit inside the car, right? This is what they, they're going to want us to subscribe to all of the features inside the car, whether it's the infotainment system or whether it's subscribing to the heated seats. Um, but the, the, we're now the manufacturers are now creating an environment where they can have an ongoing revenue stream that is created by digital capabilities in the car that we will subscribe to. So we're not very far away by, by uh, sake of example to subscribing to uh, digital services in the car where all the sensors tell us what's going on in the car so that the car can proactively tell us when it needs something as a, as a way of example and many others. Uh, another example in my life, I recently bought a new e-mountain bike as I've told you I'm, I'm obsessed with all these e-bikes and so I've been buying sort of the fun round town kind of mopedy things and uh, I recently bought a super ding dong e-mountain bike from Specialized. Well, guess what? It's not a physical product. It's a technology digital product. So first of all, the, the, there's no wires on the bike. So when you squeeze the handle, when you squeeze the brake, it all communicates via Bluetooth. You got to charge the, the, the batteries that connect the squeezer to, to the brakes. It's a little freaky if you're a guy like me. The other thing, more importantly, is the bike was designed to work with my iPhone. So you, when you buy the bike at the bike shop, they show you how to download the app. They'll download it with you. They help you set up your profile. And you connect to the bike. Well, guess what? You do this so that you can track all of your rides. And of course, you don't just track the, the geography of the ride. You track all the data 
about the ride. And if you wear a heart rate monitor, you get that. You get number of calories you burn. You get how long the ride was. You get what elevation changes there were. You get you know uh, average speed, minimum speed, maximum, all this rich data. So just like the kids who won't pay attention to the sunset, although they'll take a picture or a short video of the sunset and send it to their friends or po post it on WhatsApp or TikTok, um, the experience of mountain biking now is actually twofold. You do the ride, and then you have another experience of the digital experience of the ride with all the data. And so what's more real, the photo of the sunset or the TikTok of the sunset, or uh, the, the, seeing the sunset or the photo of the sunset? What's a more real experience doing the bike ride? Or if you're me, I come home from a bike ride now. My wife, Carrie, says, how was the ride? I said, oh, it was great. I went out with my buddies and we did this and we did that. She goes, oh, show me. And I show her my phone and she looks at the ride. And you can see yourself get better over time, right? Of course, this is what Peloton is. It is, it is a hybrid analog and digital product. And specialized in the case of this e-mountain bike has done exactly the same thing. They've turned the mountain bike into a Tesla. Now, why does this matter? Because as a rider, the data and the digital uh, information about the ride after the ride for many people is as um, rewarding as doing the ride. And I would assert if you're a native digital, the ability to share that information with your friends is actually more important than doing the ride. From a business perspective, because a company like Specialized has been is on the leading edge here, they also have a massive advantage. You and I have talked much in the past about how a data flywheel contributes to a company becoming a category queen or a category king, because the more insight we have about our top customers, the more in tune we are with the category, the more in tune we are with the category, the better that we'll be at innovating over time. In addition, let's say the folks at Santa Cruz Mountain Bikes come out with unbelievable new e-bike next week that maybe I would want to buy. Well, guess what? I've got all this data in this specialized system. And so it's hard for me to switch to a competitor when all of my data is hosted in, if you will, the specialized cloud. And so um, the big aha here is if you're in the stuff business, you've got to make your stuff digital ASAP and you've got to reimagine what your stuff actually is. The other insight, and this may be obvious to some, but I think it's important to underscore. The reason Google is on the precipice of $2 trillion in market cap, and the reason Apple's a $2 trillion market cap, the reason Amazon's a $2 trillion market cap company is because um, digital business models are what you could think of as increasing returns business models. So in a physical business model, if you were to look at the revenue curve and the cost curve, they're basically tied to each other. You know, so if you think about a Starbucks, if they want to grow revenue, they got to open a, a location. And yes, can you improve 
your cost to revenue ratio, AKA your margins over time? Sure you can. And there's this thing called economies of scale and blah, blah, blah. But when you're in the stuff business, if you want to increase revenue, there is a commensurate uh, increase in uh, cost to uh, serve those customers and deliver that revenue. However, if you're a digital business, you take eBay as an example, once they build the infrastructure and capabilities of eBay, whether they serve 10 customers or 10,000 customers really doesn't matter. There is a truly incremental additional cost when you go from 10 to 10,000 to 100,000. And because of the cloud and because of all the things that you write about all the time, we don't even have to overinvest. We can just buy more capability from Amazon, by, uh, from AWS, by, by way of example. And so what this means is as the revenue goes up, the cost line stays pretty much the same or goes up very incrementally. And so this is what's called an increase, uh, an increasing returns business. And so this is what's got to happen. And the big aha here, Bob, and I'm going to give you an example in a sec, but the big aha here is if you're in the stuff business, your physical stuff is an add on to their digital stuff. That is to say, a lot of people who are buying new mountain bikes today value the data about the ride more than they value the ride. And that's true for almost every native digital. Digital first, analog second. Well, if you're in the physical stuff business, um, most physical stuff CEOs don't even know this is going on, and they certainly don't know what to do about it. Well, Christopher, that was a uh, remarkable little tale there. Uh, lots of implications, lots of things going on. I had a couple of observations I wanted to share. I was when I was looking at my phone a minute ago. I was pretty sure. I just wanted to double check this. Um, FedEx. <coughs> FedEx was founded in fifty years ago, nineteen seventy-one, and it was in the business plan for FedEx. As you probably know, that Fred Smith said there will come a time when the information or the data about the package will be more valuable than the stuff in the package. So I'm not in any way dismissing your idea, but this notion of um, the data and information has been around a long time, right? Different people get it at different times. And I think, um, who's the author, the guy who wrote, uh, oh, I'm just drawing a blank on it, but the line is um, the future is here already. It's just unevenly distributed. So uh, the other one I thought of is a guy, Chris, who's probably had more of an impact on my thinking and all than, than anyone else's um, uh, a professor at the University of Michigan, C.K. Prahalad. And I remember 25 years ago, he had spellbound this big table of CEOs and CFOs and CIOs. He was telling a story about Build-A-Bear. And he said that store where you, know, you take little kids for birthday parties or something. And he said, you know, his basic point was, he said, the bear, he said, and all the accessories, he said, maybe it costs a total of $5, but every single parent there dropped 100, 200, 300 bucks, because it wasn't about the bear, it was about the experience that was wrapped around that. And he, he was the first person I heard say that he said, the, the things become artifacts around which we build experiences. So some people saw this early, but it was, I think, sort of on the fringes. And I think, Chris, it sounds to me very much like what you're saying is 
this isn't the fringes anymore. This is becoming mainstream. And we can, we have a choice, right? We can say, ah, oh, that's a bunch of crap. You know, that'll never happen. You know, that's, these kids don't know the value of anything. Okay, you know, yes, no on that, but uh, they're half the, half the country's population now. And uh, I don't see, I don't see any more uh, millennials being created, or uh, sorry, any more um, generation uh, digital, what do you call them? Native analogs. Uh, native analogs. We're, we're done. We're, right. we're, we're, we're the last. But so I know that some of these ideas have been around for a long time. Here's the aha. Most companies aren't doing anything about right. it. That's so here's a simple example, right? As the vaccines come out and all that, and our economies have begun to open, and, and one of the things that now many of us are enjoying again for the first time is the ability to go with our friends and loved ones to a restaurant. Well, what do we have going on here? It's ex the exact stupidity and ignorance of native analogs at work. You go to a restaurant today, and it is not unusual now for you to sit down at the table and there to be a QR code thing. And, oh, cool, we have a touchless menu. You click on that thing, and magically, what do you get? You get the menu on your phone and that's it. What, what? This is an innovation? Only a native uh, analog could think this is innovation, right? Because the rest of what needs to happen is fucking obvious. You need to be able to look at photos of the meals. You need to be able to maybe, maybe you're interested in the recipe. Maybe, maybe there are individual reviews of the individual dishes. So it's not just a Yelp review of the restaurant. It's, oh, I really like the whatever, the, the Caesar salad or whatever it is, right? Um, and of course, the obvious is, well, then you can order yourself. And oh, by the way, if you're like me, and for some reason, you, you, uh, unbeknownst to me, I can't be in the same zip code as a pickle. So you can order your burger or whatever the fuck you're ordering. And you can say, and by the way, don't put a fucking pickle anywhere near this. And oh, by the way, um, you know, we need another round of beers and so forth and so on. And so this is an exact example of what happens with every innovation. When the movie camera first comes out, what do we do? Human beings uh, uh, videotape plays. So they take the old world and they slap the technology on it. What we don't do is say, hmm, what does the new technology make possible? And so the stupidity in restaurants right now, to me, is indicative of the behavior of native, uh, an native uh, analogs and how they don't understand what's going on. And so what they, what they think innovation is, is putting a technology veneer on top of the current product or service or experience, as opposed to reimagining the product, service, or experience in the context of digital first. Yeah, I, I buy that. I'm with you completely on that, Chris. And um, I, I, I did want to come back on one thing, though, uh, about which you had talked a little while ago about the, you know, one of the manifestations of this uh, rift here with the new guys is that, that uh, the digital natives don't care so much about stuff. Okay, you know, that's fine. But um, I don't know. I don't think that there were, I'm not sure how many of us or our parents were saying, well, I'm going to go work hard 
and I'm going to maybe even work two jobs so that I can get a lot of stuff. I, I, I think that's an oversimplification or maybe just not correct or it's not broadly correct. I think so many, certainly parents I knew, my friends, my parents, you know, so many people, they worked harder like that to create what they wanted to have, which is a better life for their children. All right now, if some things came along with that, you know, at the time that was sort of fun to have with it, but I don't think that was the goal of a lot of people. Now, if the native digitals want to come along and say, I don't care about stuff, then great. <clears throat> they don't have to care about it, but uh, they don't want to work so hard as somebody else did. Okay, that's fine too. You, you can have these choices, but then, you know, you said they want to travel around. They want to Okay, great. You want to travel. Well, to travel, don't you have to have some resources to be able to travel, right? So, and then, well, but I'm not going to go work for the man, you know, in his office the whole time. Okay, that's all great, too. I'm just not ready to see that everything that teenagers, and I know you've also got 20s and young 30s in there as well. My daughters are both young 30s, so they're brilliant. But I'm not ready to see that just because the 16-year-old wants to do something a certain way means that that's right and that what you know other people have done is wrong so i I'm, I'm not missing the bigger picture here what you're talking about you're saying that business have to adapt to the new reality and i agree with you 100 percent. but there's some in this like you know we weren't all a bunch of sort of dumbass uh you know morons here pursuing stuff that wasn't uh of value so i take the teenage point of view maybe with a touch more skepticism than you uh but you are unquestionably pointing toward where the future's headed and what's going on there. And I, I think the examples, the numbers, the business cases that you've cited here are absolutely right on the mark. So, and I agree with you. you and you said something very important at the beginning of that uh, set of statements, Bob. Our parents worked to give us a better life. Yeah. Those are the exact words you used, right? And when we use the word better, better always sits in the context of something. Better is always in comparison to something. And so, you know, if you ask my grandfather, Jack, um, why he worked hard, and I did, he said those exact words to me, so that you would have a better life. Here's the aha. Native digitals don't want a better version of a native analog life. They want a different life. It's a whole other different design. And it's one that values things 180 degrees different than what native analogs value. And that's really the only argument I'm trying to make. And what I'm saying is the shift is so profound, it's easy to not uh, soak in it and get what's really happening. So uh, can I play a game with you that me and my partners played on this topic? Sure. So um, we recommend people do the following when they want to create a breakthrough category and a breakthrough new business. Uh, play this thing called a breakthrough game. And the way the breakthrough game looks is really simple. Um, imagine that um, you no longer work for your company and you're at a startup and you have an unlimited amount of money and you have all of the assets of your former company um, and none of them if you don't want. We've talked about this in the past, right? 
And then you ask yourself the question, okay, if we were the company that created the future of this category and we were unencumbered by the past and yet we had all the resources we wanted, what would we do, right? And we have unconstrained, essentially structured brainstorm around this. So um, uh, me and my partners in Category Pirates, we did this um, with the wedding ring, with De Beers. So here's, here's where we got to, you ready? So by way of context, um, um, in 1947, De Beers launched one of the most successful category designs coupled with a marketing campaign ever. Uh, um, um, uh, the the um, diamond ring was not what most women wanted on their finger. It was less than, it was around 30% or less. So what De Beers did is um, they said, okay, um, yeah, let's see. Uh, only Here it is. Only 10% of first-time brides in the 30s and 40s received a diamond ring. Wow. So in order, to, and then in, by 1990, that number was 80%. So they had to, if you will, reposition diamonds. And they did it in two ways. They niched down on wedding rings. So they got very, very tight. They weren't Yes, earrings are wonderful and necklaces, but we want to own the wedding ring. And their thinking was, if we own the wedding ring, then we'll expand out, right? And the, the way you become a dominant category leader is you own a, a niche that you can call your own, and then you can expand out from there. So that's exactly what they did. They launched a marketing campaign with a slogan, which is actually not functionally correct, <laughs> called a diamond is forever. And then, just to underscore that we, nothing, including human life itself, has any intrinsic value. Everything we value, we get taught to value. So um, in the 30s, diamonds weren't that valuable. So a diamond lasts forever is the marketing slogan. And then they literally teach the category what value to place on a diamond. De Beers, in their marketing, says the diamond lasts forever and forever equals two months' salary. Okay? And if you ask most people today, hey, um, how much money do you think someone should spend on a diamond engagement ring? Let's say, ah, about two months' salary. Well, we got taught that. De Beers decided that's what the value works. Well, um, between 1939 and 1979, De Beers revenue uh, went from $23 million to $2.1 billion in 1979. And today it's a multi-billion dollar mega industry, as you know, and the vast majority of, um, uh, of, diamond, of wedding rings are diamond rings. Now, guess what? Millennials aren't buying them. A, a lot of them don't have the money. And B, they go, two months salary for a thing? For stuff? N not so much. So we played, we played the uh, breakthrough game with, okay, if you were De Beers, what might you do? Okay, well, the first aha is today in the United States of America, more than a third of people meet their spouse or significant other digitally. Mm -hmm. 
So let's wrap our brain around this. Products, services, experiences, transformations, right? This is what Joe Pine teaches us. Well, you could argue, and I certainly would, that getting married, picking a partner, is the most transformative thing we do. Um, how much does having Wendy in your life matter? So the whole, it's the whole show. So our spouse, our partner transforms our day every day. And all you have to do is have your partner go out of town with her friends or on a trip or whatever for four or five days. And uh, you, you quickly understand what your life is like without your partner around, right? And so they transform your life every day. Okay, so that's the most transformative thing that happens to you. And now more than a third meet online. Now, when you and I were kids, we had to have this thing called game if we wanted to meet a potential partner. And when we were really young, game took a lot of courage. You know, starting with, can I muster the courage to walk across the gymnasium while the music is playing and no one else is dancing or very few other people are dancing and the girls are over here and the boys are over there. I'm going to walk across and I'm going to ask the girl that I had a crush on for the last three months if she wants to dance with me and everybody's going to see what she says or does to me. And I'm either going to walk back with my tail between my legs or I'm going to be dancing. <clears throat> well, guess what? Uh, native digitals have no such experience. It used to be when we were younger men that maybe we would uh, walk up to somebody in a bar that we found interesting or attractive and you had to have a quote opening line, right? And, and you had to have a sense of humor and you had to be able to shuck and jive with what they said and, and there was all that, right? Well, guess what? Today, that's not what it takes to find a partner. Today, your, your text game and your emoji game is what determines what happens to you in the dating world. And so, uh, as we wrote in the uh, category pirates, no copulation without digitization. <laughs> you got to have digital game. And, and I don't know about you, you know, I, I, I hope to never be single again in my life because I love who I'm married to. But in the event that that would happen, I would not know how to have digital game. I, this would be a skill that I don't have, that I would then have to learn. Okay, so all that said, that sort of sets the context of what you might call a headwind for De Beers. So if we were, we write this in the letter, if we were writing to um, De Beers, here's what we might say. The next generation doesn't want your rings. Diamond rings are too expensive, easy to lose, at risk of being stolen. Diamond rings can break, rust, they're small. So if you take them off your finger for just a second, you'll probably lose it. And diamond rings actually don't last forever. After a generation or two, the ring that used to belong to great grandma doesn't have any more sentimental value, and often it can decrease in value over time. In fact, a physical diamond ring is more annoying than it is valuable more of a liability than an asset. That's the first thing we would say to De Beers. Of course, they would give us the middle finger more than likely. But here's what we suggest that they do. So De Beers, to their credit, has already purchased uh, a, a company that does, quote, lab-grown 
synthetic diamonds. Mm -hmm. And experts can't tell the difference. So part of why diamonds are valuable is they restrict the supply. The big part of why they're valuable, of course, is because of the marketing and category design. Well, now, at a relatively low cost, you can create an infinite amount of diamonds that even to the eye of an expert, are hard to distinguish from a quote unquote real diamond. All right, so they've already done that. Okay, interesting. Here's what we think they should do. Number one, create a new category called authentic synthetic diamond. That's step one. Step two, treat the authentic synthetic diamond as a sidecar to the real product, which is the digital version of the ring. So we think that analog products that are going to survive are going to be the ones where, for the most part, the digital version is the real one. Um, so in this case, what happens if you lose an engagement ring? No big deal. You 3D print you 3D print it because the real one is on your phone. And maybe the customer plays, pays a replacement fee. However, if you think about moving from products to digital to services, guess what? Maybe a diamond ring is something you subscribe to on your phone. And for uh, $9.99 a month, you can hold the authentic um, uh, digital version on your phone. Then maybe for $14.99 a month, um, this, you can hold your spouse's phone too, uh, your spouse's uh, ring too. Because if you're like you and me, I mean, I don't, I like my, my wedding ring. I do. I wear it sometimes, uh, special occasions and shit, but I don't really give a shit. And most guys, not all, but most guys, nah, whatever. It's, you know, we wear it. Maybe we like them. We, we do it to make our spouse happy. And, you know, maybe we enjoy it. I, I like wearing it when we go, go out and do family things. And I'm very proud that she's my wife and all that. But I'm a guy who surfs in boxes and does all this stuff. And wearing it all the time doesn't make any sense. So anyway, so maybe for uh, $14.99 a month, um, the, the wife can hold their husband's digital ring or you can hold your spouse's digital ring. Now, what is a wedding ring really? It represents commitment, mm -hmm. memories, and story. So maybe for $29.99 a month, you can attach a whole bunch of things to your digital ring. Maybe it's photographs of the wedding. Maybe it's your family history. Maybe it's 23andMe data. Maybe it's uh, um, um, geo data from some of your favorite vacations with the photos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so maybe a quote unquote wedding ring becomes a digital transformation service that lives on your phone with a physical manifestation that is easy to replace. And so if you really want to uh, tap into the sentimental value of a ring, the aha here for De Beers is, guess what? That's what a ring is. And the greatest risk of owning a diamond is its destruction. Well, the cloud solves that. So if you really want a quote-unquote diamond to last forever, 
store it in the cloud. It becomes a time capsule. It becomes your relationship digitally represented. And uh, it, it's, it's the transformation of your life in the form of photos, videos, sound clips, memories, a GPS tracking data of your favorite trips, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And oh, by the way, you can share that digital ring with your family and friends if you want to. So um, that's what we recommend for De Beers. That's how radical of a transformation we see coming in the wedding ring category because native digitals are a whole new category of human being. Um, and what De Beers is facing is they either do that or something like that, or just like all the stuff that's um, being handed down from grandma to you, to your daughters, your daughters are going to call that stuff junk. That grandma's old jewelry is junk. And me, Eddie, and Cole, we know the likelihood of De Beers doing this is close to zero. They are not going to listen to anything we just said. And that's why I get back to how profound this change is. And if you're a stuff company and you're not playing the breakthrough game, you're not thinking about what in this example De Beers could do to radically transform digitally, um, the likelihood of you being here um, is very little. Well, <clears throat> sure like that story, Chris. And the um, <clears throat> won't get into that slogan about game and you know nothing without a certain thing without digitalization. I admire you for it. I was trying to think of the other day, celibacy and something, but uh, we'll let that slide for now. But Chris, you know, fantastic lessons here, fantastic ideas. Will, you know, companies take it? It cuts against a lot of grains in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think that notion that I've talked a lot about over the last year or two, which is the, the big danger for business executives saying, well, that's not what we do. That's not the business we're in, you know, blah, 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 some manifestation of that. And I think you're giving them a lot of good advice here and some facts to sort of support about saying it's not the same world. So it really doesn't matter what you do or what you've done. It's all going to come down to what do you do? What do you choose to do? Do you try to force the past onto it? new generation that has a very different view on life, or do you try to adapt your old ways to a very new future and a new reality? And I love that notion of, you know, uh, tying experiences around things. That's, uh, that's uh, an enriching point of view and the companies that get that right, as you've pointed out a number of them, and some that need to get it right. Uh, it, there will be days of reckoning coming for all these folks. Yes. Yes. And uh, like a lot of things, um, a lot of the innovation is going to come from startups. Uh, yesterday, I shot an episode of Follow Your Different with a venture capitalist named Sergey Young. And Sergey's a fascinating guy because he's the founder of this thing called the Longevity Vision Fund. And he exclusively invests in quote unquote longevity companies. And he's proclaiming that we will have human beings who live to 200 years old. And he's saying that, so the oldest human to ever live is, was 122 years old. And he is in his late 40s. And he is saying he will absolutely live past 122 and live well. So anyway, we have this whole discussion about it. His new book's a stunner. It's coming out very soon. 
I can't wait to drop the episode. Loved reading his book. I think it's an incredibly important book. And why do I share this with you in this context? Now, he's biased. He's a venture capital who invests in startups. So caveat, caveat, caveat. He believes, and he's meeting with who he says are the top longevity companies in the world, whether it's gene therapy companies or diagnostic companies or uh, the companies that are uh, allowing us. Right now, we can regrow liver. There's the ability to take a liver, slice it into 50 pieces, inject it under your lymph node, and bam, you have two livers and uh, bring me some more Jack Daniels. That we have that ability now. Anyway, um, that, all that said, what, what Sergey says is the vast majority of the innovation being done in the mega category of longevity that's going to have us living to 200, that's going to have him live to past 122, are startups because they're unencumbered. And so it's going to be fascinating to see if this shift to native digitals is as profound as we think it is, because what they value is essentially 180 degrees different than what native analogs value, and because the physical stuff business represents a third of US GDP, this is a massive economic opportunity and threat. And my spider sense is, and this is what Sergey's saying in the longevity space, is the vast majority of innovation and new category creation in this uh, digital first um, era is going to come from startups. And the likelihood that in the example I gave you, a De Beers is able to make this shift is very, very low. Yeah, Chris, I would imagine that that low uh, probability is is going to plummet, you know, over a, a few quarters, certainly over a couple of years, right? The, the time is now. And, you know, you, you've talked about it before, the future needs you. It needs new ideas and fresh ideas. So big companies can get it, but big companies drag along all their own junk, all their own stuff that nobody uh in you know current and future generations is going to care about that much or want there's that uh, an exact parallel businesses to people so christopher thank you for this uh romp and adventure here through uh, the past the present the future and some very interesting corporate strategy and just a notion of right that line i like is uh every person is actually three different people uh there's a person that other people think we are is the person that I think I am. And then there's the person I really am. And we have a choice as companies, right? You can sort of choose to be who you were or who you think you are, who you want to be, or you could try to be the company that reflects the modern realities. And it's a choice. And I hope people will listen to you on this and uh, your, your whole notion here of the um, different uh doing things in different ways, bust into this new category, but mostly don't get trapped uh, by all the crap that you carry from the past. Uh, there, there is a way out of it, but one of them is not by you know, going like this and saying, no, 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 that won't happen to me. It'll happen everywhere else, but not to me. Great stuff, Chris. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be with you as always. A romp through the different with you, Chris. It's, it's great. Thanks so much. Uh, wonderful stories in here. We're going to try to get you know all of these notes into our episode notes with you and uh, get people linked up over the Category Pirates newsletter because um, you guys are really turning out some remarkable new thinking and new ideas. 
And even if somebody looks and says, yeah, I kind of agree, it's going to spark a lot of thoughts. And I hope you'll, you'll let your spider sense that you mentioned a minute ago, I hope some other people will detect that and start to tingle a little bit. I hope so. And, and, and as a side note, um, Category Pirates isn't six months old. When we launched, a lot of people said, oh, everybody's doing a newsletter. Right? 10 million newsletters. Uh, newsletters are over. The Substack thing is done. Uh, right? That's, we heard all that. We're a paid newsletter. It's 20 bucks a month or 200 bucks a year. Well, and, and I think we should talk about this on an upcoming episode. Um, what people value is changing. And, uh, and so we are now living in a paradigm of direct to creator, where people can buy, subscribe to the creators, the writers, the podcasters, the thinkers that they most value. And um, so in spite of the fact that everybody said, oh, newsletters are over and it's too late and it's this and it's that, we launch our newsletter and about uh, two weeks ago, Bob, I'm on Substack and I'm like, oh, let me bang around here a little bit and spend some time and see what else is going on. You know, I have a few that I read, but I, 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 I wanted to spend some real time banging around. Well, turns out that Substack has, um, um, you know, their, their charts. So I click on the business category and I'm going through the, I want to see all the other paid newsletters and what they're about and, and what they charge and, and, and what's the most popular and so forth and so on. I'm going through the list. And we're number 13 on the fucking list. Oh, wow. Wow. Chris, congratulations. So, so we are on the top 25 list of Substack paid business newsletters. Substack is the category king for business, for newsletters, for direct to creator access to writers that you love. And in less than six months, the three of us pirates are in the top 1% of paid business newsletters on planet fucking Earth. And so what's my point? You know, yes, it's, 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 it's a wonderful achievement and we're very proud, but I share it mostly because I would have not thought that was possible. Matter of fact, I would have told you it was not possible. It, this was not any kind of a goal that we had. And yet it happened. And so the opportunities for all of us to be native digital are extraordinary because the barriers to entry, the cost of distribution, um, the cost of creation. So, so we are crushing legacy business brands. You know, Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Fast Company, these are meaningless brands now. Nobody reads that shit anymore. And yet business writers are thriving on Substack. And the opportunities to innovate are everywhere. And when, you know, three donkeys can accidentally make it into the top 1%, it's just indicative of the power of being digital first. As a matter of fact, the story of Category Pirates goes like this. Me, Eddie, and Cole started off, we were going to write a book. Two native analogs and one native digital get together and say, hey, let's write a book. We start working on the book. We spend a bunch of time working on the book. We get the book meaningfully done. As we're working on it, I have ADHD. I'm impatient to shit. I'm like, this stuff's too good. I, I, I can't wait right. two fucking years for this to come out. 
We're doing our own primary research where we have these incredible frameworks, these very up-to-date modern uh, case studies based on things that are happening right now. And, and I, all of a sudden, me being me, start experiencing this massive frustration with, okay, well, now we're going to finish the book over the next three to six months, and then we're going to hand it to a publisher, and then it's going to come out nine months or a year later. Uh, fuck that. So because of impatience and because of wanting to share thinking and research and so forth with the world, we say, well, let's just start publishing this shit. And we launch the newsletter. And so by going digital first, because we're impatient, we broke and took new ground. And so, and now the book is an adjunct to the newsletter. So this just happened in the last, not even six months in my own life. I, I just, I'm experiencing this in real time. We have a product called A Bunch of Thinking. We were going to package that product like native analogs in a fucking book. And we were going to do it the way native analogs do it. I start getting frustrated. frustrated. The three of us are talking. Cole is fucking 30 years old. He's been writing digitally since he was 15. He's got over 100 million views of his work. He's one of the most popular and prolific digital writers in the business space ever. That's his niche. That's what he's known as. He's the founder of a company called Digital Press. <laughs> it's what the guy does. Anyway, he says, well, yeah, duh, guys. Let's start a newsletter, not a book. And we'll, we'll throw books off of the newsletter. But, hey, the native digital whacks Eddie and I in the head and goes, duh, the real thing is the digital thing. And we're going to have an adjunct called books that are going to get thrown off of, if you will, yeah. the newsletter. And he helps Eddie and I completely do a 180. And so I, I guess my point is I'm living this in my life and have had somewhat of a crazy accidental success. And so as a native analog myself, uh, this is something I'm living. And my hope is that more native analogs wake up and realize, hey, wait a minute. Um, if you are able to invert your thinking and literally think 180 degrees from what you have, you might wake up one day and, and find yourself in the top 1% of a category that you really care about. Because you kind of know you're different. Amen. Hallelujah. Embrace it. Embrace it. All right, Professor. This has been uh, this has been fantastic. Chris, thanks. Great, great stuff. You get all those different brain cells cooking for people, and I hope some people will uh, will listen. I certainly have. I've enjoyed it immensely. Always a pleasure. And it's great to see you, my friend. Thank you, brother. Love you, Bob. Thanks so much, Chris. Love you too. Folks, we love all of you out there as well. Thanks for being with us here at Cloud Wars. We will see you again soon. Bye-bye.